The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about a case that's been stuck in the back of my brain for years. Before I started my show, I was an avid true crime content consumer, as many of you I'm sure also are. If that's the case, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you've heard of a young girl named Brittany Drexel. Brittany's case garnered a lot of media attention as her story reflects a lot of real-life experiences that I think many of us have had as teenagers. Did you ever tell your parents that you were going to a friend's house only to find yourself drunkenly hanging out at a bush party or in a different city? I know that I did. And that's what Brittany did too. She, like many of us, had no idea how quickly her trip would become derailed or who exactly had their eyes on her. Thankfully, unlike many of the previous stories I've told, this one has a resolution, one that was brought to light only this past May, which is really why I wanted to talk about it now. Finally, after 13 years, we finally know what happened to Brittany Drexel. And with that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Brittany Marie Drexel was born on October 7, 1991, in Rochester, New York, to parents Don and John. Her parents weren't married, and many reports talk about how they were hardly even a couple. In fact, they were still teenagers when Brittany was born. Her father, John, seemed to disappear from the family unit, whether that's literally what happened or not. Many reports don't mention him, though, when discussing Brittany's early life. He wasn't around too much. Thankfully, that was no issue, however, because shortly after Brittany was born, her mother Dawn would marry another man by the name of Chad Drexel. Given that Brittany shared his last name, I'm sure you could have already gathered that Chad Drexel adopted Brittany as a baby and reportedly readily embraced his role as a stand-in father. To Brittany, Chad was her dad. Chad Drexel was in the military, I'm not sure in what capacity or what his role was, but eventually his service did end, and the family would all move together to the Rochester suburb of Chile. If you look up photos of Brittany Drexel, you'll see her with either dark brown or sort of honey blonde hair. She had a big smile and even bigger, stunningly blue eyes. They were arguably Brittany's most prominent feature, and something about her that many people loved. Ironically though, her eyes also happened to be the source of her greatest insecurity. Brittany was diagnosed with congenital persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous, also known as persistent fetal vasculature in her right eye. Although it doesn't progress throughout someone's life, it's a condition that can cause many complications in the eye and affect vision. For Brittany, she was considered blind in the eye that she had this condition in, and it would sometimes wander, so she took great care to keep it essentially covered with her early 2000s-esque side bangs. 
Regardless of this condition and her wandering eye, she was still considered beautiful by everybody who knew her, and it's something I haven't heard anybody disagree on. She was stunning. And Britney's beauty was something she hoped to monetize one day. She was interested in cosmetology, aesthetics, and really wanted to get into modeling one day. Despite the Drexel family looking pretty ideal on the outside with Dawn, Chad, Brittany, and Brittany's two younger siblings, unfortunately, in her early teenage years, Dawn and Chad would eventually begin the process of getting a divorce. This was happening for reasons unknown, but we do know that it took quite the toll on Brittany. Brittany reportedly began experiencing symptoms of what seemed like depression, she was sleeping in later, letting her grades suffer, skipping school, all despite having large aspirations of, again, studying cosmetology and becoming a model. She was also beginning to talk back to her mom, something that really wasn't common, and I think it was beyond the scope of normal teenage girl backtalk. More worryingly, though, is she was doing things that were very out of character for her. I couldn't find an article about this, but according to true crime YouTuber Daniel Hallen, Brittany had actually overdosed twice on her mother's pain medication, both times apparently happening after explosive breakups with her two-year on-again, off-again boyfriend, a guy named John. It was really hard, according to her mom, Dawn, who was, again, going through a divorce, having to separate all of her assets, including her house, and watching her daughter struggle like she never had before. Dawn thinks that, with everything going on at this time, it may have been why Brittany acted out by doing something even more drastic. In 2009, Brittany was a junior in high school. For everyone who doesn't live in the United States, that means she was in grade 11. It was pretty normal for seniors, or those in grade 12, about to graduate high school, to embark on a spring break vacation every year. I'm sure even if you've never been on a trip like this, you've likely heard about spring break in Miami. Every year it's on the news where I live, and it's essentially just a mass gathering of drunken disorderly teenagers scattered throughout the city. Miami is a really popular destination for spring break. Personally, my senior class went to Cuba, but for Brittany's high school, she learned that the seniors and some of her own friends in grade 11 were going to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. If you don't know, Myrtle Beach lies along the northeast corner of South Carolina. It's about a 13-hour drive from Rochester where Brittany lived, and according to visitmyrtlebeach.com, it's 60 miles of beautiful coastline that encompasses 14 unique communities. I think they try pretty hard not to advertise how much of a party city it really is. But it's certainly known for its nightlife, and that was true even back in 2009. In Brittany's mind, I can only assume going on this spring break trip to Myrtle Beach was just the cool thing to do. Think about it, when everyone who was anyone at your high school was going to a party or doing something, if you wanted to fit in, you'd want to do anything to make sure you went, right? So 17-year-old Brittany Drexel asked her mom, Dawn, if it was okay for her to go. Her boyfriend John was also supposed to come, alongside a group of other acquaintances Brittany had, not quite as close as friends, but I'm not sure if Brittany actually mentioned that to her mom or not, but it didn't matter. Even if Brittany was going with a large group, even if she was going with her boyfriend, Dawn didn't hesitate to tell Brittany that she would not be going to Myrtle Beach, 
there were no adults, she didn't know the other people Brittany would be going with, not to even mention that it was very far away and, again, a notorious party hub. Later, Dawn would also say that she just got a bad feeling that something was wrong. She didn't have it in her to let Brittany go to Myrtle Beach for spring break. Whether it was a motherly instinct or some sort of premonition, Dawn, deep in her gut, she knew that if Brittany went to Myrtle Beach, something bad might happen. Unfortunately, she was right. Brittany and her mom argued back and forth for several days about her not being able to go to Myrtle Beach. Brittany was being stubborn, again, acting out more often these days, and Dawn was doing her best to stand her ground. But again, when you're 17, and what your friends are doing is one of the only things that matter to you, the fear of missing out or not seeming cool enough by whatever standard is a really big deal. Truthfully, it's a much bigger deal than any potential for risk or looming danger. To Brittany, her fear of missing out was more important, and she couldn't understand why her mom couldn't just let her go. So, Brittany took matters into her own hands after it became clear that she wasn't going to get permission. On April 22nd, 2009, Brittany asked her mom if, instead of going to Myrtle Beach, she could go spend a few nights at one of her friend's houses. The general consensus is that both Brittany and Dawn agreed that she should be able to do something over spring break, and that it would be good for Brittany to get out of the house for a little while, as the arguing about Myrtle Beach had been non-stop since the issue was first brought up. Dawn decided it would be best to let Brittany go for a few nights, and in her mind, they had come to a decent compromise. However, I'm sure, as you might have guessed, instead of going to her friend's house, Brittany Drexel got into a car packed full of her other acquaintances, and the group began the 13-hour drive down to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina, without her mom knowing. A few days later, on April 25th, 2009, Brittany and her friends would arrive at the Bar Harbor Hotel at 100 South Ocean Boulevard in Myrtle Beach. Brittany didn't actually know the people she was staying with all too well, and there's a lot of discussion online about how they might have been purposefully excluding her from activities. But I think being 17, one year away from graduating, and hanging out with the cool kids on their senior trip might have been good enough for her. She was bound to enjoy her trip. When Brittany called her mom that day on the 25th, regardless of how well her trip was going, she successfully put on a silver-tongued happy face and excitedly let her mom know that her and her friend were doing well, the friend she was supposed to be staying with. Brittany actually told her mom that she was at the beach, which was true, just not the beach her mom had in mind. Dawn thought that her daughter Brittany and her friend were at a local beach back in New York State along the Lake Ontario shoreline. And this seemed reasonable to Dawn, because even though it was April, the temperature in Rochester was unusually high that day, being 83 degrees Fahrenheit or 28 degrees Celsius. So Dawn thought nothing of this. She thought her daughter was safe, with a friend she knew, somewhere in Rochester. But by the time that phone call was over, the last time Dawn would ever speak to her daughter was over. Brittany would never talk to her mom ever again. Later that evening on the 25th, Brittany would leave her group of friends at the Bar Harbor Hotel and walk about one and a half miles or 2.4 kilometers south, down South Ocean Boulevard to the Blue Water Resort. 
Like I mentioned, there's a lot of discussion online about how the friends Britney traveled with weren't treating her very well. They weren't all that close with Britney, so it seems understandable as to why she ventured out on her own and made her own plans. The group had actually been to a club the night before and ran into somebody they kind of knew from back in Rochester, and so Britney went to visit him. Despite her successfully arriving at the Blue Water Resort to visit this old friend, a 20-year-old nightclub promoter named Peter Broswick, Brittany broke the golden rule. Rule number one of girl code, never go alone. Security footage at the Blue Water Resort shows Brittany arriving wearing a black and white tank top, flip-flops, shorts, and a beige purse. According to Peter, him and Brittany visited for only a short time. His friends didn't know Brittany very well, if at all, but they didn't mind that she came over to visit for a little while. Cameras then catch Brittany leaving the resort at 8.45 p.m., and at that time, it seemed like she was heading back to her own hotel room at the Bar Harbor. As she was walking, she was texting her boyfriend John, who, like I mentioned, was supposed to be also going to Myrtle Beach with the group as well, but he didn't actually come because he was scheduled to work back home in Rochester. Text messages back and forth between Brittany and John went on until approximately 9.15 p.m. after she left the resort. Around that time, very suddenly, Brittany stopped replying. John knew that she was out walking alone, so after a while, he obviously began to get concerned. He started making phone calls to the friends Brittany was staying with in Myrtle Beach, all of which had no idea or seemingly any interest in knowing where she was. And I'm sure, despite not wanting to rat his girlfriend out, once he realized that nobody in the area had any idea where Brittany was, he ended up calling her mother, Dawn, and confessed everything. John told Brittany's mom that not only was her daughter 13 hours south in a different state in a party city that she was explicitly told not to go to, but that now she was also missing. Nobody knew where she was. Dawn didn't hesitate to begin frantically calling her daughter and then decided to call her ex-husband, Chad. The two together would contact Rochester police, and any attempts to contact Brittany would continue to go unanswered. Interestingly, Peter Broswick, who would have been the last person to see Brittany in person alive, checked out of the Blue Water Resort that night at 1 in the morning. Brittany had only been with him a few hours before, and even more interesting was him and the other guys he was staying with at the Blue Water Resort drove 13 hours home in a hurry straight back to Rochester, even leaving his clothes and hotel deposit behind. And when they arrived, Peter did not hesitate to secure an attorney. A lot of people found this to be immediately suspicious, understandably, it definitely is. However, in hindsight, Getting a lawyer was probably smart for Peter Broswick, and you'll see why shortly. Rochester police would get in contact with law enforcement down in Myrtle Beach and notify them that Brittany Drexel from New York State was missing and hadn't been accounted for in person since 8.45 p.m. on April 25th. Pretty quickly, Myrtle Beach police were able to get in contact with management at the Blue Water Resort where Brittany was last seen leaving her visit with Peter Broswick, and they were able to view the CCTV footage of her and then promptly followed up with the friends she was staying with at the Bar Harbor. 
From the reports I've read, to me, it seems like those friends who, again, were only really acquaintances with Britney and who will still remain anonymous throughout this episode, although some people have chosen to name them, were not very helpful when interviewed by police. They didn't seem very invested in Britney's potential whereabouts, and when police were able to look through their phones, it seemed like the most anyone cared about was getting a pair of shorts back that Britney had borrowed that night. And just like Peter Broswick, as soon as police were finished with that group and completed their interviews, they immediately left Myrtle Beach. As that group was departing, Don Drexel was arriving. Brittany's mom immediately drove down to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina to be close to the potential investigation that was going to unfold into her daughter's disappearance. And eventually, she would relocate there permanently. Myrtle Beach police were able to search the hotel room that Brittany had been staying in and were able to account for most of her belongings as expected. And I say as expected because there was no CCTV footage of Brittany arriving back at the Bar Harbor where she was staying, so she would have disappeared somewhere along her walk back from her visit with Peter. According to police, the only notable things that were missing were her purse, the outfit she was wearing, and her cell phone a cell phone that police had already been working diligently to track. They were able to pull records and saw that Brittany's phone had been pinging off of cell towers along US Highway 17 out of Myrtle Beach towards Charleston. Police were then able to see that her phone pinged once again in Surfside Beach along that same highway, and then once again in an area by the North Santee River, which is close to the Georgetown-Charleston County line. Investigators would end up organizing a massive search involving 50 uniformed officers in this area because, again, this was the last time her phone pinged. After traveling through this area, it was either destroyed or turned off because Brittany's phone would never ping again. The search of this area would last approximately 11 days, but unfortunately, nothing of value really came from it. And before long, days without Brittany turned into weeks and there was no sign of her anywhere. As time continued to pass, there were two major theories circulated by media and the public as to what could have happened to Brittany Drexel. Her story began to really captivate the public eye, as again, I'm sure you can imagine your own teenage self lying to your parents about your whereabouts, but as a teenager, you feel invincible. It's hard to conceptualize the consequences of something going wrong. It's even harder to imagine something going so wrong that your life gets cut short. One of these theories involved Peter Broswick, and another one involved someone totally random, someone by the name of Timothy Deshaun Taylor. Let's start with Peter. Peter Broswick, being the last person to see Brittany alive, evidently surrounded him with a cloud of suspicion that followed him everywhere he went. Although he continued to maintain his innocence, the public couldn't seem to reconcile his innocence with his initial hesitancy to cooperate in the investigation, as well as his urgency to secure an attorney as soon as he arrived back home. In May of 2009, Brittany's mom, Dawn, went on the Dr. Phil show to discuss her daughter's case on national television. I'm sure the family wanted to capitalize on how much media attention her case was getting. And although this certainly was true, I'm sure Dawn wanted to bring attention to Peter's potential involvement in her disappearance and frankly put him in the hot seat. And Peter Broswick agreed to be on the Dr. Phil show alongside Dawn, but likely for different reasons. I'm sure he wanted to try and clear his name. 
On the show, Peter openly expresses his frustrations after insisting on his innocence once again, and Don evidently rebuts back with questions about his version of events and what actually happened between him and Brittany the night that she went missing. Peter continues to plead, and tells the audience that his reputation has been ruined by the court of public opinion despite no evidence of involvement in her disappearance. But with Dawn and the rest of Brittany's family having zero answers as to where she could have been, I can only imagine that hearing of his struggles with a character assassination in the media was incredibly frustrating and the least of Dawn's concerns. However, Peter was kind of right. Being the last person to see Brittany alive was the only piece of information anyone had to go on, and that would be true for quite some time, and thus the investigation went cold. In 2014, still with no signs of Brittany and no leads on her disappearance, Dawn spoke out about a theory she believed may be probable. She thought that Brittany's relentless insistence on going to Myrtle Beach for spring break may have been for reasons more than just wanting to fit in and hang out with the seniors. She speculated that Brittany may have been coerced to coming to Myrtle Beach with the promise of a modeling job or something along those lines. Remember, that was an industry she was trying to break into. She further speculates that when Brittany arrived, what she got was no modeling contract, and instead she was kidnapped and forced into human trafficking. At the time, this seemed like it could be a viable theory. Brittany hadn't told her mother exactly why she wanted to so badly go to Myrtle Beach, although when you're 17, you want something really badly, just wanting it alone is enough of a reason to put up such a fight about it, but Brittany's mom didn't see it this way. As we know, human trafficking is a massive underground industry that runs right in our backyards all throughout North America, and frankly, all over the world. However, Myrtle Beach police didn't buy into this as well as many others did. They claimed there was, quote, little to no trafficking happening in the area. Now, this statement could have been a massive oversight or a blatant lie, because it is a bold statement to make about any city, especially in such a hot tourist destination where human trafficking is rampant. To further dismantle the claims by Myrtle Beach police that there was little to no trafficking happening in their area, a 2019 report by the South Carolina Human Trafficking Task Force rated the county that Brittany disappeared in to be the number one site for human trafficking in the entire state. However, this theory, like many others that people had, didn't lead anywhere. Time continued to pass without a trace of Brittany Drexel. Eventually, her high school would give her family an honorary diploma. Dawn's divorce with Chad would finalize, and every year her friends and family celebrated holidays and birthdays with an empty seat at the table. By the time 2016 rolled around, Dawn said openly for the first time through tears that she knew her daughter wasn't coming home alive. But the thought of human trafficking stayed in the back of many people's minds and it would become relevant once again when the second theory, the second quote-unquote person of interest in the public eye was brought to attention, Timothy Deshaun Taylor. After a few years of silence, the FBI would hold a news conference in June of 2016 regarding Britney's disappearance after being in contact with a jailhouse informant by the name of Taquan Brown. The FBI said, without really any context clues as to where they got their information, that they believed Brittany had been abducted from Myrtle Beach shortly after she left the Blue Water Resort and had been taken somewhere in the area of Georgetown, again, around where her cell phone's last ping was. 
They also issued a $25,000 reward for information leading to the resolution of this case. Now, from the information we've already went over, this FBI news conference didn't tell anyone really anything they probably didn't already assume. However, having them issue a formal statement about this presumed narrative of what happened to Brittany is a clue in itself. They must have had information from a source or something to verify that this is likely what happened to Brittany. And that was exactly true. Two months after this news conference, in August, the Charleston Post and Courier reported on new developments in Brittany's case relating to Timothy Deshaun Taylor. Timothy Taylor was, at this time in 2016, serving time at the Georgetown County Jail for his role as a getaway driver in a 2011 robbery of a McDonald's where a cashier was shot. During a bond hearing for Taylor that same month, FBI agent Garrett Munoz testified that Taquan Brown, his informant, told him that back in 2009, he was an eyewitness to the sexual assault and murder of Brittany Drexel at a stash house. Taquan Brown, who had also been serving time alongside Timothy Taylor at the same state prison, but for a different charge, further stated that he was at that stash house to pay a debt to Timothy Taylor's father, Sean Taylor. He said that when he was at the house, he walked through the home into the backyard to meet Sean Taylor to pay this debt, and as he did, he witnessed Brittany Drexel being assaulted by Timothy as well as some other men who were present. His story then continues with meeting Sean Taylor in the backyard, the payment being made, and then some commotion coming from inside the house. He says he then witnessed Brittany Drexel attempting to escape, and that she was grabbed, pistol whipped, and dragged back inside. Taquan Brown then asserts he heard two gunshots and witnessed what looked like a body being wrapped up and removed from the stash house before being dumped into a nearby alligator pit in the wilderness. There were allegations from Taquan Brown that Timothy Taylor's intention with Brittany Drexel was to sell her into sex trafficking, but as the story goes, that's not exactly what happened. This was a shocking revelation, and the media grasped onto it fairly quickly while they tried to verify the details on their own and do their own armchair detective work. It was even more shocking because this wasn't just a person making a statement trying to generate buzz in the news. There was an FBI agent standing behind this informant and having his back. And according to Agent Munoz, the statements made by Taquan Brown were partially corroborated by information received by a second informant who was also serving time at the Georgetown County Jail and remains anonymous. According to this secondary informant, Timothy Taylor was actually the one to abduct Brittany himself before taking her to the stash house, showing her off to his friends, and then again making arrangements to sell her into human trafficking, just as Don Drexel suspected. But this secondary informant's story differed slightly. Instead of Brittany being shot, killed, wrapped up, and put into an alligator pit after she tried to escape, this secondary informant said that Timothy Taylor actually planned on killing Brittany once her story garnered a lot of attention in the media. He didn't want to get into hot water, and so he thought it was better to just finish her off. However, instead of the FBI focusing on the fact that these two informants who were allegedly reliable having different stories about how Brittany Drexel died, they focused on what made sense about their stories to them, and focused in really, really hard. So now, we have two people alleging that Brittany's case is open and closed. We know who did it. 
So as long as her body can be found, or at least some of her remains, then we have answers. And we also have a whole nation of others pointing their finger at Peter Broswick, even though his involvement and Timothy Taylor's involvement have nothing to do with each other. Interestingly, the only reason that information about Timothy Taylor's potential involvement, according to Daquan Brown's testimony, was even made public was because it was spoken about during a bond hearing for Taylor. Like I mentioned, he was incarcerated for his role in a robbery back in 2011. However, there were issues with him being prosecuted for this crime because he had actually already been through that process in state court and was sentenced to probation. So why was he now being incarcerated and held? It was because federal prosecutor Winston Holliday wanted to bring this crime back into a federal court for two reasons. The legal and on-paper reason was because everyone else who robbed the McDonald's that day in 2011 along with Timothy Taylor got much harsher sentences and Taylor only got away with probation. But the real reason, and Holliday admitted to this in court, was because he was so absolutely convicted of Daquan Brown's eyewitness testimony about Taylor's involvement in Brittany Drexel's disappearance and death that he wanted to allow that investigation into Timothy Taylor to move forward without the risk of Taylor going on the run, and he needed a reason to keep Timothy Taylor in custody until they could get some physical evidence to convict him. This is a massive legal loophole, and it obviously did bring up the legal formality of double jeopardy, where you can't legally try someone twice for the same crime after the ruling has already been made, unless a higher court overturns that ruling. But they were able to get around this through a formality called the dual sovereignty doctrine, where someone can be prosecuted in both a state and federal court for the same crime so long as the crime in question violates both state and federal law. This was a precedent set in the case of Gamble versus the United States, if anyone is interested, and it was upheld in Taylor's case too, so the prosecution could move forward on trying him a second time for a robbery, even though all they wanted was information about Brittany Drexel. Timothy Taylor would end up taking a plea bargain, as again, I'm sure he realized all he had to do was give up any information he had about Brittany Drexel, and he wouldn't face the now 10-year sentence he was looking at for this robbery. A part of this plea deal was that he had to take a lie detector test, which I have my own issues with, so take this with a grain of salt, but some of his answers were indicated as being deceptive. In the sentencing memorandum, it stated that Taylor alleges his full knowledge of what happened to Brittany Drexel only contains a conversation he overheard between two individuals who apparently had her cell phone. But when the examiner administering the lie detector test asked if he knew who was involved and Timothy Taylor said no, that came back as deceptive. Under the plea agreement in that case, since he was being deceptive, he was now facing 10 years for his role in the robbery, a long ways away from his initial sentence of probation. And keep this in mind, it will become important later. In 2019, the FBI informant Taquan Brown gave another interview from prison to the Rochester, New York station WHEC-TV. However, this time, his story changed once again. He said to the reporters in this interview that he had actually seen Brittany Drexel four separate times after she went missing back in 2009. He also said that when she was murdered by Timothy Deshaun Taylor, 
it was actually one month after the first time Taquan ever laid eyes on her. His recount this time was that Brittany had been sexually assaulted by a large group of 8-12 to 12 men on April 27th at that same stash house he had mentioned before, two days after she was abducted from Myrtle Beach, but she didn't die. He says he didn't recognize her at that time, but he did after her case began to garner media attention. He then says the second encounter he had with Brittany came a few days later, when he went to give money to Sean Taylor, and in his first story, he alleged that Brittany tried to escape and was shot, but instead, he said this time that it was actually someone else who was shot. While the other person's body was being wrapped up and taken to an alligator pit, just like it was in the first story, Brittany was still alive in the stash house in this version of events. The third time Taquan alleges he saw Brittany was a few days after this, when he saw her on a lightly traveled dirt road near his own cousin's residence in Jacksonboro, approximately 80 miles or 130 kilometers south of the stash house. The context of this encounter remains to be known, but the last time he says he saw Brittany was in May of 2009, this time on his cousin's property, again in Jacksonboro, while he was visiting with another friend. He claimed that in a wooded area near this property, he witnessed Brittany Drexel being murdered by an individual he only knew as Nate. This person allegedly shot Brittany twice with a double-barreled shotgun, and immediately after, Taquan and his friend left, out of fear of being implicated. Now, despite Taquan's story changing almost in its entirety, law enforcement maintained that it was credible because it was partially corroborated by his last version of events. It seems a little bit like tunnel vision, but we'll table that for now. Taquan Brown also talked about how, since he came forward to FBI agent Munoz, his life has been put in great danger since he'd been given a new label as a snitch. He complained that his testimony should have never been publicly available. Unfortunately, those are the consequences of testifying, whether he realized it or not. He was going to have to be accountable for what he said. The latest update until this year was that prosecutors were continuing to move forward in working to convict Timothy Taylor again, and were still trying to fish for information about Brittany Drexel as they were convinced he was the one responsible for her disappearance and eventual death, even though they had nothing to go on besides eyewitness testimony. If you've listened to my episode about Ronald Cotton, you'll know exactly why that is problematic. Since then, nothing had really happened in this case. No new updates, not a lot of media coverage anymore, and still no sign of Brittany. That was until this past May, May of 2022. This past spring, a new development in the case of Brittany Drexel came completely out of left field. It had nothing to do with Peter Broswick or Timothy Taylor or really anybody previously suspected of involvement in Brittany's case, at least in the eyes of the media. Out of seemingly nowhere, 62-year-old Raymond Moody, a registered sex offender who has been previously charged for offenses spanning from South Carolina all the way to California back in 1983, confessed to the abduction, rape, and murder of Brittany Drexel. It turns out, although many people neglected to report on Raymond Moody as much as they did on Timothy Taylor, likely due to Taquan Brown's eyewitness testimony and the judicial proceedings that followed, Moody was actually named a person of interest in Brittany's case 
as well as another abduction case back in 2012. This came after a lifetime worth of sex crimes by Raymond Moody, including sodomy of a child under the age of 14, where he was sentenced to 40 years, but was released on parole supervision in 2004 and then released from supervision in 2007. The other disappearance, aside from Brittany, that Moody is suspected in is the disappearance of 28-year-old Crystal Souls, who disappeared also from South Carolina back in 2005. According to her mom, she was struggling with drug addiction at a young age and was supposedly quite vulnerable. She was last seen at a corner store in Andrews, South Carolina, and her cell phone pinged only 20 miles or 32 kilometers from where Brittany's last did. Crystal's mom was notified that Moody was a person of interest, but was never made aware of what evidence police had to suggest he might be involved. However, now with a confession in Brittany's case, we're all hoping Crystal's family can get some answers too. But where did this confession even come from? Back in May, Moody voluntarily turned himself in to the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office on the basis of an obstruction of justice charge that he was facing. From the documents I've seen, it's unclear exactly what this charge involves, but on the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division arrest warrant, the charge is listed to have been incurred on April 25th, 2009, the same day that Brittany Drexel went missing on her way back from the Blue Water Resort. Raymond Moody would provide law enforcement with a full confession on May 4th, and again, I don't know all the details as hardly any of the official documentation has been released. However, I do know that police were able to verify his involvement because he did point them to the location of Brittany's remains, and her family's biggest fear was realized after they were located following a three-day excavation endeavor by the FBI. On May 11th, 2022, Brittany Drexel's remains were located in the woods off of a gated, private area near Georgetown, South Carolina, in the area of Harmony Township. She was buried approximately four feet underground. A few days later on the 15th, they were formally, positively identified as belonging to her through DNA and dental records. The only further information I have right now is that on the arrest warrant issued against Moody, it alleges that Brittany had been raped and strangled after she was abducted, before being buried likely the very next day on April 26, 2009. This information was released to the public on May 16th, but that's pretty much the extent of what we know, other than the fact that neither Peter Broswick or Timothy Deshaun Taylor have anything to do with Brittany Drexel. Other than that, likely until the trial proceedings take place, we don't really know what happened here. It seemed like, although Raymond Moody was considered a person of interest in her case back in 2012, and even there was a search conducted of a hotel room he was staying at near where Britney's phone last pinged, police and the media neglected to put the pressure on him in favor of this wild story given by Taquan Brown and Timothy Taylor. Taquan Brown, for whatever reason, willingly put himself into the spotlight and falsely accused someone of brutal crimes that almost got Timothy Taylor incarcerated for an additional 10 years while waiting further investigation. Additionally, the amount of time and money spent by law enforcement trying to verify his claims and keep Taylor in custody is insurmountable. As of right now, given the confession made by Raymond Moody, 
the FBI considers their investigation into Timothy Deshaun Taylor concluded. And as for Taquan Brown, I'm sure he'll face some sort of legal backlash for what he did. I don't often speculate, but I can only assume that he may have been trying to leverage this false information he had for an earlier release time for his own crimes, but I don't think he anticipated such a media storm to follow or to have to take full accountability for his statements in court. But unfortunately, actions have consequences. Even more unfortunately was it looks like the media was distracted for quite some time buzzing about theories when the real killer had been on the loose the entire time. It seems like as of right now, police are being a little stingy with their information. And for good reason, it looks like there obviously will be a trial moving forward. But what we do know is that there is a guilty person. We do know what happened to Brittany Drexel. We know that she likely lived in paralyzing fear during her last hours on Earth, and we know where her remains were left. However, we don't know exactly how she crossed paths with Raymond Moody. We don't know why Taquan Brown decided to throw Timothy Deshaun Taylor under the bus, and we don't know what evidence investigators had to look at Raymond Moody again and actually file for some sort of charge against him. We don't know what prompted him to even make the full confession, but I'm sure we're going to find out. According to the 15th Circuit Solicitor Jimmy Richardson, police have reason to believe that Brittany's abduction actually happened in Georgetown County, not in Horry County where Myrtle Beach is located. I'm not sure exactly why they think this, but apparently there is video evidence to verify this information that the public has simply just not seen yet. I don't know if we ever will. As of right now, Raymond Moody has been charged with murder, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal misconduct. These charges consider him eligible for the death penalty. Moody has waived his rights to a bond hearing and preliminary arraignment, seemingly trying to rush the trial process, but that hasn't exactly happened. A plea hearing was supposed to take place sometime this summer, apparently, and we were all looking forward to it, hopefully to find out more information about what exactly happened here. And it actually should have been happening right now at the time of this episode release at the very latest, but some reports say that police and the lawyers have a lot of catching up to do given there is 13 years worth of evidence and tips that they need to sift through for discovery. Discovery being a judicial process that takes place where both sides of the court exchange all of the evidence and information they have. And again, after 13 years, there's guaranteed to be a lot of it. It looks like Moody's proceedings may begin in October of 2022, but I will certainly keep you all updated with that. Brittany Drexel would have been 30 years old by now, and who knows where her life may have taken her. Unfortunately, she was condemned by a silly choice she made when she was 17, and for the rest of her life, what it could have been will forever be a mystery. There are likely many more developments in this case to come, so I'll be sure to speak on them as much as I can. I'm very interested especially to hear about Taquan Brown and Timothy Taylor and, of course, Peter Broswick. I think this case demonstrates exactly what happens when police get tunnel vision and when the media get tunnel vision. Every true crime story that I have read or watched about Brittany Drexel's case focuses almost entirely on Timothy Taylor and Peter Broswick. Even though Raymond Moody was listed as a formal person of interest in 2012, we never really heard about him because he was so random. 
So I'll be looking forward to learning exactly how him and Brittany crossed paths, how did his life connect with hers, and if he's responsible for the disappearance and likely death of Crystal Souls as well. But until that information comes to light, I have to simply end things here and just thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you, especially considering that this is a pretty renowned case in the true crime community, one that we've all been holding on to answers for, I think. And finally, in 2022, probably actually in 2023, it looks like we're going to get them. And truly, I can't say this enough. Please be safe. Don't leave your friends alone, especially at night and especially in a new place or city. People like Raymond Moody unfortunately do walk among us, and you can never be too careful. I'll see you here for the next Crimopedia episode on August 31st, but until then, you can keep updated with me regarding the case of Brittany Drexel on my Instagram at CrimopediaPod, and if you have any case suggestions, you can find my suggestion box at my website at CrimopediaPod.ca. Hopefully, one of these days I can do a case update on Brittany Drexel as well, likely after the trial is over, so probably at least a year from now. But until then, we just have to wait. I'll see you next time, everybody. Stay safe. Stay safe.